And thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon of shittim wood, shalt thou make it. A cubit shall be the length thereof, and a cubit the breadth thereof. Four square it shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns thereof shall be of the same. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof, and the sides thereof round about, and the horns thereof. And thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. And two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it, by the two corners thereof, upon the sides of it, that shalt thou make it. And they shall be for places for the staves to bear it withal. And thou shalt make the staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put, put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps, and shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And he shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt offerings, nor meat offerings, neither shall ye pour drink offerings thereon. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. College teaches you many life's lessons. Some you learn in class and some you learn elsewhere. As students uh, at PCC, at the college where I attended for four years, we spent a lot of time in what was called the Dale Horton Auditorium. The auditorium held about 3,200 people. Uh, we spent a lot of time there because every weekday we were there for at least an hour, whether it was chapel in the morning, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. On Wednesday, we were there for an hour for the Wednesday night uh, service. Uh, we were there for a total of three hours. It was used for a total of three hours on Sunday, one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening, and it was used for Sunday school as well. And that's not even counting the times we were there on Wednesdays for a student body or the times we were there on Sundays for Vespers or the special Bible conferences and mission conferences that it was used for. My point is that it averaged about an hour of day uh, of full use with over 3,000 people inside. Now you can imagine that this would lead to, this heavy use would lead to some wear upon the building, somewhere, uh, some wear on it was more evident than others. And one of the less obvious uh, features of the wear upon the building included air quality. With so many college students in such a confined space, uh, with little restraint for their use of perf perfume or cologne, the upper reaches of the auditorium would reach dangerous levels of scent. Now, I never knew this because I never went to those upper reaches of the auditorium. I learned it from people who worked the lighting in the sound booth in the upper story, and that told me that they feared some problem creeping up that they would have to go upon the catwalk to deal with because it would uh, literally take their breath away and not in a good way. In the past, incense had a much rarer use. After all, few could afford the aromatics that were used, at least the ones that are mentioned 
here in, uh, th that were used here in the tabernacle. It was reserved, therefore, uh, for royalty and for wealth. It, this incense exuded power and privileged. It created an environment of delight. It was literally often the heir of deity. And yet, we ought to ask the question, what is it doing in the tabernacle? What function does it serve? For the altar of incense appears as one of the unique mysteries of the Old Testament. It appears in Exodus in an unusual area. It doesn't appear where we would commonly think it would appear in uh, the descriptions of the candlestick and the table of showbread. From its oddly placed description, it languishes in obscurity, at least as far as the Old Testament goes, because it shows up here and in a couple areas later, and then it kind of vanishes from the scene. In comparison, the table of showbread, or at least that which is on it, uh, the ark, of course, appears frequently, and the candlestick appears frequently, but this altar seems to languish in obscurity. Individual censers are mentioned much more frequently uh, than this altar, even though its use would have been regular and, in fact, central in the Day of Atonement. Yet its actual working purpose, that of burning incense, seems uh, strangely unfamiliar in the pages of the Old Testament. So much so that the commentator James Durham can legitimately claim of all the purposes that have been proposed for the burning of incense, none is given in the Old Testament and none provides a satisfactory explanation of the Old Testament practice. Now, we, looking through uh, the New Testament eyes, see the purpose of the altar and its meaning and the way it pointed forward to the Savior. And yet, I suggest we kind of reserve that New Testament vision until we have tried to see the altar through its original perspective. How does the Lord intend Israel to see the altar as a revelation of his presence and his character? Well, I want us to try to answer this question by looking at the altar in three categories, its construction, its location, and its prohibition, its construction, its location, and its prohibition. The Lord begins his instructions, uh, with, the construct his instructions with the construction of the altar. The first five verses deal with the elements uh, constructing the altar, including its dimensions and its decorations. The altar is known for its functional purposes, or his functional purpose, that appears in verse 1. Thou shalt make an altar to burn incense upon, of shittim wood shalt thou make it. It is an altar to burn incense on. We call it the altar of incense because that's uh, its primary purpose. And yet, uh, oddly, uh, as Durham says, its intended purpose seems to fade into almost irrelevance as it is compared to its sacrificial purpose. When you look at the, the times that this altar is mentioned, it is mentioned more frequently in terms of putting blood upon this altar than it is to putting incense on the altar. The top of its use will be a repository for blood in the sin offerings significantly on the Day of Atonement, but more on that later. With this element so predominant in its description of the altar, 
Its use of incense often fades, and yet that is its primary purpose. And it will be its more frequent purpose when you look at, uh, when we get to that point in the Lord's instructions. We ought to also consider the material used to construct the altar. The altar is to be made of acacia wood. Uh, We look at at this in the bronze altar. We thought about the irony of the fact that uh, here's an altar that's made of wood that's supposed to corral flames. And the anomaly of this, many commentators therefore speculate that uh, no one put fire directly upon the top of this altar, but they had censers, uh, brazier's bowls that they would put the fire in from the altar itself, the bronze altar, and then bring it into the uh, into the tabernacle and place that censer on top of this altar, the golden altar, uh, when they were offering incense. The altar, it, therefore, is well constructed for its use. Look at verse 2. A cubit shall be the length, cubit the breadth, four square shall it be, and two cubits shall be the height thereof. The horns shall be of the same. It is 18 inches by 18 inches square. It is 36 inches high or approximately that Uh, that way. The horns appear to be made of of the same piece. They are made of wood, which may indicate uh, this understructure. The entire structure is then overlaid with gold. Thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, the top thereof and the sides thereof uh, round about, and the horns thereof, and thou shalt make unto it a crown of gold round about. Everything is gold. It fits with the metal that is used in the entirety of the sanctuary, from the ark to the mercy seat to the table of showbread to the candlestick or the lampstand. Everything is made of gold. And here this, are made of gold or uh, wood overlaid with gold, and here this altar is also overlaid with gold. Uh, we have this instruction for the crown or the molding or the lip that is to be around the top. And as with the table of showbread, this probably and likely is there uh, to keep things from falling off the top, to keep things secure. And beneath that crown, we have uh, another familiar aspect, two rings, as we see in verse 4. Two golden rings shalt thou make to it under the crown of it by the two corners thereof, under the two sides of it shalt thou make it, and they shall be uh, for places for the staves to bear it withal. Now, you can, bra- you can briefly remember that this is somewhat of an oddity. And every other piece of furniture that has these rings and has these staves, how many rings do they have? They have four. So why does this piece of furniture only get two? Is it be- being gypped? I don't think so. I think if you think about it, an 18 by 18 square, you don't need that many rings like you do with one of the larger pieces, the ones that are longer, like the table of showbread, like the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it would be very difficult for you to carry such a thing. It would be a little waggly if you had only two rings. But this altar is, only needs two rings in order to carry it. Sometimes rings are just rings. And finally, we have the usual staves in verse 5. I shall make the staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. Again, we're not told a lot of precision. How long are these staves? How wide wide are the rings? What's the diameter of the rings? What's the diameter of the staves? We're not told these things. We're not given these uh, instructions in order for us to replicate these materials. We're given them because we are to understand 
the aspects of God that he is revealing about himself in them. We have seen this before, and it's good for us to to have a bit of reminder of some of the aspects uh, that are mentioned here. The rings and the staves are there because this is to be transported. God's presence is going to go with his people. This altar is going to be transported along with the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat, with the table of showbread, with the bronze altar, everything else that has rings and staves. Regarding this construction of materials and use, uh, we've seen these materials before. We've seen the altar, we've seen the altar before, we've seen the horns before. These emblems of divine power and specifically the gold a gold with its weightiness that reminds us of the glory of God, its heaviness, its importance, the importance of God, His sovereignty. It fits and with this piece of furniture. The materials and the, the way in which we, as we look back at the sanctuary, as we look back, as we've seen everything that uh, the Lord instructs Israel to do and construct regarding the sanctuary I want us to remember a principle that we are often uh, prone to forget, the principle of reverence. The vocabulary of reverence has dwindled in our common usage. The gold on this altar, its horns, which represent the sovereign power, the way in which this is situated in this text as the way man approaches, the priest approach God, signal that part of their attitude toward God ought to be one of reverence. And it's one that, in our day and age, people are more and more prone to forget. We may credit this decline in reverence to the lack of things that really deserve reverence. We have fewer and fewer things in our our modern experience that we find to be deserving of reverence or awe. We may blame some of it to democracy's skepticism about the very nature of reverence, whether reverence is an appropriate human response at all. And yet there is one absolute being deserving of reverence who sits enthroned upon the mercy seat, denoting that presence with the metal of gold. This altar reminds us that we have no right to approach him but for his gift. He has chosen to come down and meet with his people. He has chosen the way in which his people are able to draw near to him. And even we who are, live on this side of the cross remember that in Christ we have the right, not in our own person, but in his righteousness to draw near to God. We not o- now, in Christ, not only have access to that presence, but the divine command to reproach, to draw near. And all this can also tempt us to lose our sense of reverence, the common, commonality and ordinariness of our ability to approach God in prayer, the command that we have, the ease with which we are able to come and worship him can encourage or tempt us to lose our sense of reverence. And it's good for us to take a moment as we consider the construction of this altar and the gold 
to remind ourselves of the God with whom we draw near. The creator, the sustainer, the sovereign, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the infinite, the eternal, the immutable. When we consider his beings and his attributes, reverence is the lone proper response to drawing near to God. We see this in the construction, but secondly, I want us to look at the location. From the construction of the altar, the Lord moves on to discuss the placement of the altar and its use. For its use is connected to where it is placed. He directs, the Lord directs Moses to place the altar in a specific location, as you see in verse 6. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. This placement has caused some controversy uh, considering the text of Hebrews chapter 9. There the author of Hebrews writes, For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, uh, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. The author of Hebrews seems to indicate that the, this altar of incense was within the most holy place, next to the Ark of the Covenant. This would be problematic to the later insistence that the priests only entered that holy place once a year. In that same chapter, Hebrews chapter 9, the author writes, But into that second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And so it would seem to you that the only time that the priest could enter into the most holy place was once a year with blood. Now, if you look at Leviticus chapter 4, which talks about the sin offering, we read, And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. And so part of the sin offering, which probably we have to assume was not infrequently made by the people, was that he was to take of the blood and put it on the altar of, burnt, uh, of, on the altar of incense. The best explanation for the passage in Hebrews comes from the instructions regarding the Day of Atonement in that same book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 16, And he, that is the Aaron, the high priest, shall take a censer full of burning coals of the fire from off the altar of the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil, and shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not." So it seems that there was a censer that was to be taken, a bowl that was to be taken to to the bronze altar, that coals were to be put on it from that altar, that it was then to be put, brought into the most holy place, and sweet incense to be burned, smoke filling the place, that he die not, that the high priest die not when he enter into the holy place on the day of atonement. However we interpret the position of the ark, whatever uh, solution you have to this conundrum, there is one very evident reality, and that is the close connection between this altar altar, and the presence of God. You see it in this verse, in verse 6, do you not? As you have the veil, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, where he meets with his people. 
We see the, this connection in this verse. We see also the con- conception of meeting with Moses and communing with Moses at this location. This is where God meets with man. And this meeting point appears in the New Testament as well as it is the place where Gabriel meets with Zechariah in Luke 1.11. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is there. He is uh, in the temple. He is offering incense because it's his turn to do so. And it's at that place, at the altar of incense, when Gabriel meets and tells him that John will be born. Next, the Lord instructs Moses how Aaron and the priest after him will use the altar. Look at verse 7. And Aaron shall burn thereon sweet incense every morning when he dresseth the lamps, and he shall burn incense upon it. And when Aaron lighteth the lamps at even, he shall burn incense upon it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. I think here we see part of the reason why this piece of furniture appears here rather than earlier. It parallels the daily offerings. We may infer that the rituals took place as a habitual pattern at dawn and at dusk. We also saw the nature of of the use of the lampstand. When we looked at the lampstand, we questioned the, the, whether or not it was burning all the time or whether it was just burning at night. And uh, some, we have here some uh, evidence that it might have been lit only at night as we see him making good or lifting up the uh, lamps at dawn and causing them to ascend or uh, burning them at dusk. Consider the image if we take the order of these instructions as they appear as chronological, that the high priest comes and every morning he offers the sacrifice, a morning sacrifice, upon the altar. And he takes the coals from the altar and puts them in his censer and brings it into the holy place and lays it upon the altar of incense. Then he offers incense thereupon, maybe as he is is dealing with the lamp or before or after, we don't know exactly uh, the the chronology there, but there's an implied connection between all of these events. That the sacrifice of worship preceding the offer of offering of incense are connected. I want to return to the observation of James Durham, who writes, Of all the purposes that have been proposed for the burning of incense, none is given in the Old Testament, and none provides a satisfactory explanation of the Old Testament practice. The most, he goes on to say, is that the with assurance is that making incense smoke was a further attestation of the belief in Yahweh's presence. So Durham is saying that the only reason he can come up with why this altar of incense is there is because it reflected the presence of the Lord. While Durham's right about the lack that there's any explicit purpose mentioned in the Old Testament, I think he's wrong about this sole Old Testament reading. Instead, with New Testament eyes, we can clearly see the connection between the offering of incense and the act of prayer. This is seen in the story of Zechariah. Immediately before he offers incense there at the altar of incense, we read, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. We see this explicitly in the book of Revelation. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hands. 
In the heavenly temple, as it's described in the book of Revelation, the angel is given a censer and he takes it and offers it upon the golden altar before the presence. There's only one golden altar in the entirety of the temple, and that is this altar. The Old Testament even itself has a reference that connects these two ideas of prayer and incense. In Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And I just love this verse because it not only connects prayer to the offering of incense, but it also connects it to the sacrifice, the daily sacrifice, to which this activity seems, in my mind, inextricably linked. Maybe only a glimpse of the, of the idea of incense and prayer, but it is, I think, well. Consider also the connection between the offering of incense and the morning and evening sacrifices, which God declares to be a sweet-smelling savor. In worship, in word, in prayer, the Lord is meeting with his people. There is some importance about where this is located. It is in a straight line between the mercy seat and the bronze altar, showing a connection of how we draw near to God through the sacrifice of Christ and how his sacrifice also is there enabling our prayers. As our persons are made acceptable to God by the sacrifice of Jesus for us, represented in the bronze altar, so our prayers are made acceptable and sanctified by Christ by that same fire. And having this access, let us not grow delinquent in its use. The idea of how we are to, our persons are accepted by Christ, our prayers are sanctified by Christ, should cause us to draw near in prayer. We may balk at drawing near to God, saying, I don't know if I'm going to say the right things. But the reality is that Christ in you has sanctified your prayers, and as your person, as weak and enfeeble as it may be, your good works, as weak and imperfect as they may be, are made acceptable to God by Christ. So your prayers are made acceptable in Him as well. We see the construction and location and finally the things that are prohibited. Instructions end with the practices God forbids and how those who are prohibited from approaching God are able to approach His holiness. We find a foreboding warning here in verse 9. Ye shall offer no strange incense thereon, nor burnt offering, nor meat offering, neither shall ye pour drink offering thereon. Now, you can't read this text without immediately thinking of the story of Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, verse 1, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there are so many things that we could uh, seemingly can think about that would be uh, the way in which this would be illicit, unlawful. Is it because there were two of them and there was only supposed to be one? Are they, you know, they're the sons of the high priest, but they're not the high priest. Uh, and the word strange here is modifying fire instead of the word incense as it is in verse 9 of our text today. And yet it 
does remind us about this prohibition. That they are not to offer strange incense, strange fire before the Lord. So what Nadab and Abihu do is in some way connected to this verse because it's the same word strange that appears in both. But I want you to consider the rest of these prohibitions. No burnt offering. No meat offering. No drink offering is to be used to be put on this altar. These prohibitions are not forbidding sinful practices. Israel is to offer burnt offerings. Israel is to offer meat offerings. Israel is to offer drink offerings. They're just not to offer them here. And thus the Lord regulates not only what elements belong in worship, what his people are all to do, but how they are to do them and where they are to do them. There are few exceptions to the reality that every aspect of worship is to be regulated by the Word of God. Of interest, we find also the use of this altar in the work of atonement. Verse 10, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood of, of the sin offering of atonement. Once in the year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy unto the Lord. You've already addressed this topic before. We saw how significant that this altar has horns on it. Those horns represent the power of God. And the fact that they are the place where the blood of atonement, the sin offering, is put, suggests that it is through the power of God that the wrath of God is satisfied. That he in his power is able to use the blood of the sacrifice to erase the sin of his people. Now I have an idea that uh, probably Reformed preachers can only use this Meredith Klein quote uh, once every year. He wrote in his commentary on Zechariah, strange detergent staining blood, but such is the forensic chemistry of the justification of God's chosen priesthood. Jesus, Lamb of God, must pour out his blood in the baptism judgment of his crucifixion, that there might be a baptismal laver filled with blood, a fountain opened where sinners lose all their guilty stains. We just love that expression, strange detergent, staining blood, but such is the forensic chemistry of the justification of God's chosen priesthood. That, that one sentence says so much. And here we see its truth. You may say, well, he mentions the laver. Shouldn't you wait for a laver uh, to use it, to spend your one time of, of using a Meredith Klein quote? Well, I think it's more appropriate here. Because this is where justification happens. This is where the atonement happens. This is where the blood of the covenant is shed for us. Because, my friend, nothing matters more than dealing with your guilt before God. And there is nothing that deals with that guilt but Jesus. We are all born deserving death and hell, but Jesus suffered for his people. He is God-made man. He lived a perfect life to be the innocent sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He died for his people, and he rose again from the dead to proclaim freedom to sin's captives. That the final 
sacrifice of atonement had been made. The final blood had been sprinkled on the mercy seat and put upon the horns of the altar. Today, he can be yours by faith. Do you believe that what he did, he did for you? Turn from sin and follow him. As we come to the end of this passage, we see the connection between the atonement and holiness. The altar is most holy unto the Lord. It's most set apart because of its role in the use of atonement. And as that altar was set apart and made holy by the blood that was put upon it, so us as his people are made holy by the blood of Christ applied to us. But it does not only remind us of the... uh, the fact that we are holy positionally and personally because of what Jesus has done, but it reminds us that as believers we have a duty to pursue holiness in our lives. The life that the Lord gives us is not given solely for our own use, but but we are given that life and given that freedom for the glory of the Lord. The altar is holy through sacrifice. The blood of atonement is made holy as are the prayers of his people, as are his people, and we are to use the means of grace to pursue that holiness. And as we come to the table of the Lord, we remember the fact that we have access to the throne of grace by that sacrifice. We come remembering the Day of Atonement where the blood was put upon the horns of the altar as the body of Christ was broken, as his blood was spilt that staining blood which is strange detergent for us to justify God's priesthood. We remember what we owe him through this sacrament. We remember how Jesus ordained this sacrament for our benefit. We come to this table recommitting ourselves to be holy. We see the necessity of holiness in this table. We see the, the payment, the, what it cost for us to be made holy in this sacrament. We see the means by which God gives himself to us to make us holy. And therefore, it calls us to end the strength that we receive, both spiritual and physical, through the sacrament to give ourselves to holiness. Let's pray together. You, O Lord, are God alone, and we bow before you, not in servile fear, but with reverence. We offer unto you our prayers as a sweet-smelling savor, acceptable to you, because Christ has made them acceptable, and he sits at your right hand interceding for us, and his Spirit speaks to you with groanings that we cannot utter. And so we commit ourselves to holiness. By your Spirit, give us grace to be holy, to come before you, to bow reverently before your throne. So hear our prayer for his sake. Amen.